This is the Value Investor Podcast with Tracy Reinick. All things value, all the time. Welcome back, value investors. So I talk a lot on the podcast about the Zacks rank and the tools on Zacks.com, you know, some of the screens that we have here. And we also have a collection of newsletter portfolios that include uh, some that I know you guys here who are interested in value investing might want to know about. The value investor is on there. That's my portfolio. And I also run the insider trader portfolio, which does sometimes have a value component to it because when the stocks get really beat down, that's when the insiders will jump in there. And a lot of times they are value type of stocks and everybody's fleeing them. That's why the insiders are getting in. Uh, But there's also a couple other interesting newsletters over there, uh, depending on what floats your boat. Of course, there's the Dividend Investor, which I like a lot because I'm a big dividend fan as well. Some of those could be value oriented too. And then there's some kind of cool niche ones like the Marijuana Innovator and Healthcare Innovator. Plus, there's a whole bunch of other ones. A lot of them are growth. And then we have one that's surprise trader. That's about uh, the earnings surprises. So you can check it out. We have a special promotion that we're running right now that uh, you could get everything in all of those newsletters for 30 days for just a dollar. So you can go over there, peruse what's in there, what stocks there are, look at all the commentary from all the editors here, including myself. You can get all of this at zax.com slash promo. So it's zax, Z-A-C-K-S dot com slash promo. And uh, go check it out because I encourage people to see what's in all those portfolios over there. Okay, so now back to our podcast episode. So I talked about women investors in my recent Market Edge podcast. And while I was preparing for that podcast, I researched several well-known women investors. Now, these are ones that I would consider to be amateur uh, investors. They did not do it for a living, but they became well-known because after they passed on, uh, you know, they donated their um, wealth to someone. And those people, you know, uh, usually go to the press or issue a press release saying they got a big donation kind of thing. And that's how all of these stories come out. Uh, So, but a lot of these women were able to take a very small amount of money and grow it to pretty, uh, would you call it extreme wealth? I kind of would. I feel like anything over a million dollars is kind of, you know, you're doing something right. And so they were able to grow it well over a million dollars. And we all hear these stories of uh, people who buy, say, the hottest IPOs. There's always these tweets going around about, oh, if only you had bought Amazon at its IPO, it's up 18,000% now. And like $1,000 is now worth XYZ amount, like well over a million dollars. And those are fun. Those are like, you know, it's winning the lottery. It's fun to dream about. But after I read these articles about these various women who were able to do it without buying any of those IPOs and seeing those kinds of returns, um, I realized that, you know, there's another way that you can grow your wealth that's not just about these certain few blockbuster IPOs. There's a lot of great companies out there and there's, uh, again, a lot of ways to um find winners and these great companies invest in them and come out basically on top at the end. So I wanted to talk about one of the investors that I consider to be one of the great 
amateur investors of all times. And she never really gets her due because she did pass away in the 1990s. I'm probably like the only one who remembers this story, but it has stuck with me for several decades now because her returns were just so enormous. Um, She was uh, first started investing uh, in the 1930s, and she apparently went through her brother, who was a broker, and then the Great Depression happened. He lost everything, as did she, because she had invested with him, and his brokerage firm ended up going under, which was a common thing back then. So during the 1930s, she basically took a step back, decided to regroup, didn't get back into buying any stocks until 1944. So in 1944, she took $5,000 and she opened up a Merrill Lynch account. Now, this is um, Anne. She um, used to... um, she was like, let's just say she was definitely interested in investing, which was unusual at the time. It should not be unusual now. So we can all follow like what her techniques are now. But at the time, it was somewhat unusual. And certainly by 1944, I mean, the 1930s were very rough on investors. You were not back anywhere near to the pre-recession or pre-depression highs back then. Then you had World War II. It was just not a time when most people wanted to be investing. So she started off with $5,000. Now, I plugged that into an inflation calculator because it sounds like a lot of money even for back then. And today, if you started with her same amount, it would be $72,885 accounting for inflation. So She saved a nest egg and then decided to put it all in there in 1944. And that's a pretty big nest egg. Now, you don't have to start with $72,000 at all, but she did. So we're going with it. So she died in 1995 at the age of 101. And if you do the math, she had invested for 51 years. It was mostly in stocks, but in a little while, I'll explain why she ended up buying some bonds at the end of her life. But it was she was a stock investor and she loved it. She would go to Merrill Lynch, read the research reports that they put out because remember, there was no internet or anything back then. You actually had to look at the paper copies of everything, and she was very diligent about her um, research, which I encourage all of you to do. So um, she basically started investing this $5,000 right when she retired. Now, according to Money Magazine, in an article by Frank Lolly, and this article I found on Google was from January 1st, 1996, so this is right after she died. He wrote a very nice write-up about her investing in her life and everything because it's so um, amazing how much money she was able to save. But she worked at the IRS, actually, for 23 years after she put herself through law school, and she was an auditor there, and she learned a lot about money and uh, rich people who, how they got it by looking at their tax returns, basically. And she decided that the best way to get rich in America was to buy stocks because that's what all these people of these tax returns that she was looking at were doing. 
So that's when she decided once she retired, she would go back into the market. Now, when she retired, she was making $3,150 a year. That was her salary, which in today's money is $57,976. So she wasn't, uh, she was middle class. She wasn't upper middle class by any means, but yet she managed to save that $5,000, which was more than her yearly income for one year and start investing it. So I'm going to go through some tips of things that she did throughout all those decades that worked for her that was a success that I feel like we can emulate in our own portfolios. So the tip number one is that she bought brand name companies and she bought them in areas that she understood. And for her, that was drugs, beverages, and entertainment. The article doesn't say this, but I want to say, and when I've read other articles about her, that she was interested in the drug companies because I think her dad was a doctor or something. So that's how she was like aware of what the drug companies were doing. But the other ones are just kind of common things that we still have today that all of us would use the beverages and the entertainment. You know, that's no different. So she's basically buying what she knows. And the drug companies included a big buy that she made in the early 1950s. This was bigger than her other purchases. This was a $10,000 purchase, which um, given the inflation adjustment was pretty huge amount into sharing plow. Now, if sharing plow sounds familiar to you, that's because they were around all the way until 2009 when they were finally bought out by Merck. So they've been merged into Merck. That 10000 dollar buy of sharing plow in the early 1950s by the time she died in 1995 was worth 3.8 million dollars so that's a dividend compounding for you plus just these drug companies had really good years in the 80s and the 90s so sharing was bought by Merck so I thought I'd take a look at Merck today in case you know she had continued to live and still owned it Um, so their forward PE is 16.6 They do pay that dividend. It's yielding 2.7% right now, which isn't too bad. It's not like the highest I've seen, but it's not too bad. And earnings supposed to be up 13% this year and another 9.1% next year. I looked at the five-year returns, and it's up 41.4% versus 48.8% for the S&P 500. So trailing the S&P 500 by about, uh, let's call it like about seven, seven and a half percent. So that's not awful, but again, you could have maybe just bought the S&P 500 during those five years. But I did go back to 2000 for the last 19 years, which would have included um, the dot-com bust, a recession, 9-11, the, the Great Recession in um, 2008, 2009, and the bear stock market for a whole bunch of those years. And Merck shares are only up 10% during that time period for 19 years. 10%, but that does not include the dividend, uh, versus 109% for the S&P 500. Um, As I said, the 1990s were super good for the um, medical, the drug stocks, and a lot of them had huge gains in the 1990s, like I'm talking, you know, triple digits and and above. And so um, a lot of them really didn't do much in the years after that, after the dot-com bubble burst and everything like the growth stocks pulled back. The stocks were considered among those like hot high flyers back then. So 
that's why you're getting that underperformance there. So she had held all that time. It might not have been quite as fun as the prior years. But uh, that's something to keep in mind. You buy what you know and always check in on your companies and what they're doing. And that brings me to tip number two. Okay, so according to her broker, she almost never sold anything. And that kind of goes along with the Warren Buffett philosophy of the time to sell is never. But she didn't sell because she hated paying commissions to the brokers. Now, we don't all understand that that much, except we used to pay until just you know a few weeks ago four or five dollars to trade um it used to be like 9.99 in some cases a couple of years ago and but prior to that you would have pay like big commissions out to Merrill Lynch or whoever your broker was and it she just couldn't take paying the commissions so one way to avoid the commissions is just to never sell anything so it was considered like her buy and hold uh strategy but um, she kind of did it on accident, so to speak, because she didn't like paying those commissions. And some of them really paid off big because she did end up owning companies, obviously, for decades. And some of the big winners were huge winners during all of that time period with the dividends reinvesting. So for an example, in the Money Magazine article, she owned Capital Cities Broadcasting, which none of us know, not heard of, but that was bought by Disney when she was owning it for a big premium. So she got a big premium on that. So I thought I'd take a look at Disney now in case she owned Disney now. The ticker is DIS. And um, over the last 19 years, if she had kept living and held on to that one, it's had a nice run. It's up 248% versus 108 for the S&P 500. But Disney is a, a Zach's number five strong sell right now because those earnings estimates are being cut. Earnings expected to be down 19% this fiscal year. And um, it still has a PE of 22. So it's on the pricier side now than it has been in a while because you got those earnings coming down while the shares are still still somewhat elevated here as everybody's waiting for the streaming service to launch, right? So there's a lot of costs involved in launching that. They're putting a lot of money behind the content like all these companies are doing. So those earnings are coming down. But it does pay a dividend yield, not as good as you might think, only 1.3% right here. So that is Disney. So moving on to the third tip. So by the early 1980s, when she was nearly 90, Anne had 100 stocks in her portfolio. That's a lot. <laughs> like, I don't really recommend 100 stocks. That She's basically like a mutual fund manager at that point. And remember, she would go to her broker and read all the analyst reports. And not only that, she attended shareholder meetings in person, not just over the phone. She actually went to the shareholder meetings. Um, you know, I, I don't know what else, but like a, a ton of other things she was doing in person to run this portfolio. It was seemingly, it sounds like a full-time job. But by the early 1980s, that $5,000 she had invested in was now $10 million. So that's a good chunk of years had passed in there. So it was compounding and she's investing presumably pretty well here. So... 
by that point too, she that $10 million portfolio was invested in a lot of these dividend companies. So tip number three is to have some dividend exposure in a long-term portfolio. You want to, because if you reinvest those dividends, they compound and that can really add up. So by the early 1980s, she was earning $40,000 a month in dividends on that $10 million which makes about sense. So that was 480000 a year. So that means her portfolio was yielding about 4.8%. But remember, the 1970s was another uh, like secular bear market. It was not good for investors, and um, a lot of the stocks were cheap, and a lot of the dividend yields were much higher because people were shunning stocks. Remember, um, you had the high treasury rates at the time, and you could put money in a bank and get 10 or 15% interest in a bank. So actually, her 4.8% yield on that portfolio was was underperforming other areas she could have stuck the money at that time. Uh, But she stayed in their stocks, and she wasn't living off this yield. So she did plow it back into the stocks, which is how she managed to grow this portfolio so spectacularly year after year. Now, at, just like today, the capital gains were taxed. And just like not pay, wanting to pay her broker commissions, she didn't want to pay those taxes either, like any of us do. Do any of us want to pay capital gains? No, we hate it, right? And I know there's some of you out there who will hold on to a stock so you don't have to pay the capital gains. You will like refuse to sell big winners because you don't want to pay it. I get it. I, I've been there too. Um, but she figured out a way to start buying some tax-exempt bonds with those dividends so that in the 80s, some of that money was not being reinvested by that point. It was going into these tax-exempt bonds where she did get a decent like percentage that was at least close, if not a little bit higher than her yield, actually. So um, her broker said by the mid-1980s, The cash flow from the portfolio, because you had a secular bull market starting in uh, 1983-84, and so her portfolio kept growing, and her cash flow was about $750,000 a year from the portfolio at this point. And remember, she's not really using any of it. (laughs) So I thought I'd take a look at where can you get some nice dividends today? Like, where can I start to maybe create a portfolio that has some nice dividends in it? Well... We have a lot of them in the dividend investor uh, portfolio we run here at Saks, but I decided to run a screen and look for some ideas. And so I looked for the Zacks rank of one or two so I could get rising earnings estimates. I did look for value with a PE under 15 to stick in our some value criteria. And I looked for a dividend over 4% because I might as well get something kind of juicy, right, if I'm going to do it. And I got 48 stocks, which was more than I would have thought. A lot of them were like insurers. There were a few banks in there, especially some foreign banks. There were some retail, actually quite a bit of retail. As we know, Macy's has that crazy high dividend, but um, I'm not going to include them here. And then there were some REITs as well. So I picked out one REIT, and it's Whitestone REIT. WSR is the ticker there, and they have a dividend right now of 8.15%. Their P is just 12.9. They haven't reported earnings yet. They're reporting on October 30th, if you're listening to this, 2019. So uh, you might want to listen in there. 
Earnings are expected to be down 6.9% this year and up 0.6% in 2020. So what they are involved in, obviously, it's a REIT that's real estate. Since 2006, uh, they have been investing in go-to centers in affluent neighborhoods. And if you go to their website, it shows like a Whole Foods in like a neighborhood, um, not a huge mall, but like a neighborhood type of mall, a smaller type of mall with a lifestyle like buildings. Like, so they call it services and experiences is the real estate that they focus on, which is why the Whole Foods was in there. So you might have a supermarket, you might have, um, you know, like a workout uh, facility, uh, yoga, like all of this kind of stuff about servicing and experiences. Not an actual, like, I'm going there and I'm buying some jeans, like apparel, necessarily. So, um, like I said, this one has a dividend yield of 8.15%. But I did look at the five-year return, which um, is not that great. It shows it down 6.7%. Remember, the S&P 500 is up 48.7% in that time period. But that doesn't include the dividends. Like Presumably, you're getting this dividend. It's 8% right now. And then you're reinvesting that into the shares. So hopefully, you're getting some of the growth through that dividend. But it has uh, underperformed the S&P 500. Then I looked at some of the retail and thought, like, should I dip my toe into some of that here? Some of them are pretty good dividends. So I thought I'd take a look at the gap. GPS is the ticker. I've talked about them in the past on the show, but it's been a while. They are going to split up into two with Old Navy being spun off. And then you're going to have Banana Republic, Gap, and Athleta into its own entity. So right now as a bigger entity, the Gap, their PE is just 8.6. That dividend yield is 5.4 right now. So that's pretty juicy. They're not reporting again until late November, right around when the holiday season is in. So uh, you're going to have to wait. Earnings, though, expected to be down 20.5% this fiscal year and another 1.1% in 2021. Actually, it might be up slightly, 1.1%, but not much of a gain there. And some of that is probably because of the spinoff, too. So you have to take a look and see what the valuations are going to be like when they actually do the split up. I looked at the five-year return, and these shares are down 53% now over the five years. Like I said, that's almost the exact opposite of S&P 500, up 48.7%. And the 19-year return, boy, if you bought and held these and never added anything or didn't reinvest those dividends, you're down 12.4% over 19 years. Wow, that's, that's not good. But as value investors, we look for things that are being discarded, you know, cheap, and we try to get in there at the cheapest we can to buy these kinds of companies um, because that's where value investors can succeed. Now, I also went outside of my screen because I thought, well, why not some banks here? Like, wouldn't banks qualify? And I looked at some of the big banks, and it's because the dividend is not um, worthy to really be above the 4% yet with a lot of the big banks. And you have some Zach's rank issues with some of them. But I did take a look at Wells Fargo because they do have an, uh, an actual 4% 
um, dividend yields. So that's the highest of the bigger banks like JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup. So Wells Fargo, WFC, they are a Zach's number five because those estimates are being cut. But earnings expected to be up 6.3% this year, but down 47 next year. They have a new CEO. So maybe they'll have some new life over there. The PE is 11.1, which is in line with a lot of these other bigger banks. Um, so it's it is on the cheap side, but not like dirt cheap with a single digit PE. But um, yeah, if you're interested, you might want to keep some of the banks on your short list to take a look at them when those earnings start to turn around. Or you might want to look at some of the regionals or even the smaller banks that might give you a slightly bigger dividend than some of these big guys. So by the time Ann Scheiber died, that was in 1995. Um, her portfolio, remember, it started with $5,000 in uh, 1944. So 51 years later, when she died, it was worth $22 million. But a lot of that last decade was during the secular bull market of the 1980s when you were having an average of 18, little over 18% in the S&P 500. And she had reinvesting those dividends for all those years she had a lot of shares and it just basically compounds on itself by that point and in this money magazine article they calculated out her return it turned out to be for that 51 years 22.1 percent which is basically better than almost any of the professional investors except maybe Warren Buffett during that time period. He's slightly above her. The article says at 22.7%. And Peter Lynch, who is also a famous investor from Fidelity, he was at 29.2%. But even Benjamin Graham, who had an amazing track record in like the 10 years he ran money, or maybe it was slightly longer than that, was um, 17.4%. So she was a, you know, not trained by any means, but she did her homework and she followed the techniques of a lot of these big time investors of buying, um, you know, cheaper stocks. She had those dividends. She reinvested them. She did a research. She attended the meetings. She knew what she was buying. She was pretty, very well diverse. She had the hundred stocks. So if one blew up, it didn't blow up her entire portfolio. And I'm sure some did blow up. We just don't know it because this article didn't talk about the big losers she had, but she definitely would have had some losers in there for sure. Nobody gets it a hundred percent right. And while I like it that she's diverse, I would not own 100 stocks. That's crazy, really. But she did start off with small amounts. She usually never bought more than 100 shares. And back in the day when you had a broker, you had to buy in big groups because then um, that's how the commissions work, to avoid the commissions. So you had to go buy in in like lumps of 100 um, and then later on, they let you do like 25 or 50, like weird reasons, but you had to pay more and all this stuff. So she would do the 100 shares. And the same is true now. Now that we have all these options of investing, you don't even have to do that. You can literally buy one share, one share a month if you want to um, in on most platforms now. So keep that in mind that a lot of the things she did it's way easier for us to do now and it's um, even easier to accumulate money. 
And remember that, um, you know, she did it for 51 years. And really, time is your friend. Uh, you're not going to make the $22 million in, you know, a much shorter time period unless you are a very good trader. But as an investor, it's really about time and compounding and letting these companies grow their business and you're owning them as they grow it. So always keep that in mind, too, that you are an owner of the business when you're a long-term investor. So getting, you know, having a company that does share buybacks or dividends is powerful. Powerful for you as an owner and allows you, um, you know, a lot of benefits there. And also keep in mind that um, I'm not saying you have to have all dividend portfolio by any means. I do not. I have a combination and most people should, but a lot of growth companies don't pay the dividends, although some do, but many of the value stocks definitely do. Um, so keep that in mind. Us value investors may be getting a little bit of something in there for our patients. And as I showed with some of these stocks like Merck, you had to have a lot of patience over the last 19 years to be up only 10%, I think it was, right, I said? Um, or was it down 10%? I don't remember now. But you definitely had to have a lot of patience if you're owning all those years in that one. And getting that dividend uh, helps with some of that. So these are just some tips that I thought are kind of interesting and good to keep in mind. And um, remember, it is possible to squirrel away small amounts of money and have it turn into something big as long as you kind of keep at it and um, keep your mind on the end goal, whatever that may be. Now, at the end, she when she died at 101, um, she decided to leave her fortune to Yeshiva University, which she did not attend. But I read in one of the articles that she had done a lot of research in the newspaper in their library. And so she enjoyed doing that. So she just decided to leave the money to them. So that was a very nice gift for them in the mid-1990s. So let's recap the stocks I talked about today. So we did talk about how she owned the sharing plow, which is now Merck. So Merck, ticker MRK. And those drug stocks, a lot of them are interesting. Some of them are pretty cheap. Some are not. But you need to do your research on those and look at their pipeline and all of that. So Merck, MRK. Then we have Disney, which is a Zacks 5 right now. Because uh, those estimates being cut, Disney DIS is the ticker there. And then we had um, we had a couple. Oh yes, we had the REIT Whitestone REIT, which is the, in those go-to centers, and they're mainly in like the big metropolitan areas. Uh, they list Phoenix, Chicago, Dallas, San Antonio, and Houston as the areas they're in. WSR is the ticker there. Then we had GAP. It is splitting into two, so keep that in mind. GPS is the ticker there, but it has that nice dividend right now, 5.4%. Then we talked about Wells Fargo, WFC, which which has the highest dividend of the big banks at 4%. And um, is that it? That's it. So, yeah, I like reading these stories. Every couple of years we get a new one of an investor who was unknown and then decides to, um, you know, donate their money. I was chatting with uh, one of my work colleagues here at Zacks about why we don't hear about more of these, and some of it is because they don't donate it. So if you just donate it to your family <laughs> 
for instance, you're leaving it all to them, then there's no reason for them to go to the public and go, hey, by the way, you know, my mom saved all this money and now we're rich. Thanks. Like, no, that's just not going to come out. So it takes the donation part of it for these stories to come out. But there are secret investors out there. So why not you? Why not be one? I, I love these stories. So I'm going to be bringing you more stock picks as we go along here every week into 2020. So if you want some more stock ideas, be sure to subscribe because I'll be bringing them to you every week. And we're going to have more from Benjamin Graham and some more tips about investing from him too. And so you can find us on a lot of platforms now for the podcast. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, and um, we are on SoundCloud with the Zach's Market Edge. So if you want to listen to the Women Investors podcast, you can find that on SoundCloud under the market. Market Edge and get this podcast as well. But be sure to get us somewhere and I'll see you again next week with some more value stocks. This material is being provided for informational purposes only and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identified and described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.